Mission Creep, fresh and frank voices in global development. I felt like smashing my glasses today. I just want to... You have a true friend down under. Another episode of Mission Creep, fresh and frank voices in global development. I'm Brendan Rigby, the Managing Director of YDEV. And I am joined, as always, by... Carly Steffen of the Centre for Social Change up in Brisbane. Welcome back, Carly. Thanks, Brendan. Hello. It's all a bit exciting in Australia at the moment, isn't it? It certainly is. And we'll be getting to that a little bit later. And we're also joined by Wei Yo, the Managing Director and Co-Founder, or rather Founder, the single founder of OIC, the Cambodia Project. Welcome back, Wei. Thank you. I, I founded it with my alter ego, Wayne Yates. <laughs> uh, is it just as exciting in Cambodia? Things are always exciting in Cambodia. Never a dull moment. Um, yeah, it's, it's very wet at the moment. I'll say it's very muddy and wet. And it's interesting trying to go from meeting to meeting while trying to look respectable until you notice that your ass is wet and has mud all over it. So there's almost, almost no point, really. But yeah. <laughs> So long as you back your way out of any meeting room, you'll be fine. <laughs> Don't look at my ass anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite hard to do. It's true. It's right. So this week on our episode, we're going to be talking about leadership change across the world, but in one country in particular, the refugee crisis affecting Europe and indeed the whole world, and whether or not you need to learn a language to work in development. So... A particular country just had its fifth leadership change in five years when uh, the majority Liberal Party of this ruling coalition spilled and elected a new party leader. Uh, This party leader then essentially automatically became the leader of this country. And no, we're not in Africa. We're actually in Australia, which the BBC labelled the coup capital of the democratic world. So Carly, can you talk to us a little bit more about what a spill is and how this all came about? Well, this all came about around, oh, this was Monday afternoon and we first heard rumblings via Twitter, obviously, and it essentially, there were a few negative polls for, for the Liberal Party and this was Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister of Australia, was basically facing a backlash against many, many, many things, which, you know, would take a long time to list. Uh, but basically there were rumblings that that they were, he was going to be deposed by his main rival, Malcolm Turnbull. And so we, yeah, basically heard Malcolm Turnbull announce on Monday afternoon about 4 o'clock that he was going to challenge the leadership and that means that they all, the, the party, have to come into one room and essentially vote to, uh, to see who, you know, whether or not this, this is what a spill is. A spill is basically everyone sort of, the people put their names into a ballot and... And then there's a vote and the majority wins, essentially. And this is the second spill that's occurred this year. The first one was in February. And, yeah, by the by 9pm, 9 9.30pm 9 that night, we had a new Prime Minister. I mean, there's so much to say about it, but I'm wondering perhaps if, if whether this is actually a good thing for democracy or, I mean, just, just in light of that, the Labor Party did change its rules post the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd spills and made it a, a pretty impossible to do something that's so similar, you know, essentially have a new prime minister within hours. 
uh, it was a new leader of the party, that is. It would have to be a, if there was a, uh, any kind of spill, there'd be a 20-day voting period for the broader party membership to vote on and then then there'd be like a caucus meeting and, and there'd be an equal weight of of the votes uh, between the two sets of voting groups and then a new leader would be elected. So it so, wouldn't be so quick, basically. So th- although, this is the, he- although this is the fifth leadership change, Carly, uh, it's the third spill as well in the past couple of years. And Julia Gillard deposing Kevin Rudd and then Kevin Rudd coming back and deposing Julia Gillard and now Malcolm Turnbull deposing um, Tony Abbott. So it's the third one. In, in less than five years. And spills are nothing new in the Australian democratic system, but are we seeing more of them for a particular reason? Well, I mean, there's two thoughts. I mean, yeah, are we seeing more of them because we're, we have very low attention spans and the idea <laughs> of seeing the same person's face on TV for more than a couple of years is annoying? Or are we simply seeing more of them because the quality of leaders that we've had in recent times don't hold up to the standard of what we've had before? We've, We've had leaders that have, you know, been in power for 15, 20 years or whatever it is, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, are we not going to see that again because these guys that are the, new, are the new guys are not as good? Or I guess the third one could be, do we now have such a fast media cycle that they stir up, um, you know, rumours and stir up nonsense perhaps about some leaders simply because of the 24-hour news cycle now that we have a perception that they are incompetent. Maybe the re- previous ones were incompetent too, but we just didn't know about it so quickly. Yeah, I know. I know the politicians are quick to blame media, and, and in particular, quick to blame social media for this. But I, I don't know if that's fair or even accurate. But just coming back to Carly's question, whether or not this is good for democracy, because this is very much part of the Australian Westminster system, isn't it? That, yes, that's that, right. So we actually end up electing as part of our uh, voting system, we elect a party to rule our country and that party is responsible for electing its own leader. So essentially when we go to the we go to the polls for our national elections, we will vote for our local MP, Member of Parliament, and that will be that those votes will go towards a particular party. Uh, uh, so we don't elect our leader, the leader of our country as such. And so they're well within their rights to depose a leader uh, if they if they don't see that leaders being fit. Uh, but there is there, ha- there was a lot of um, conjecture and, and people still throwing around this. We didn't elect we didn't elect Malcolm Turnbull. We we elected Tony Abbott and and even I'm pretty sure Joe Hockey, the probably now outgoing treasurer, said that you know the Australian people elected Tony Abbott and it's not quite accurate. We did elect a party and it's it's within their rights to change the leadership so i think the question you guys raise is is good one is is you know is this a good thing for democracy i think the only thing that is good about well, there are a number of things that are probably are but one thing which is clearly good i think is that we have a better leader and you need to have good leaders in australian politics whether or not you agree with what they say whether or not you agree with their ideology you need good leadership on one side because you're going to get good leadership from the other side as well. And Absolutely. that's one good thing that you can pretty much unequivocally take out of this is that I think the new leader is potentially a better leader than the old one. Yeah, I completely agree, Way. I have a feeling that 
and there's a lot of progressives in Australia who are quite upset because it was it seemed to be a bit of a sure thing that Tony Abbott was going to be ousted at the next election. Should he have you know stood and that the party didn't oust him prior to? Um, but my argument is why put Australia one year behind? Like if, if Tony Abbott was going to essentially keep running us into the ground, we'd much rather have a better leader and potentially have a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom between mm-hmm. leaders of our two major political parties because really it was just all about our the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, Labor leader. It's just being marginally better than Tony Abbott is all he had to really do in order to, you know, ensure that he's probably going to sail it to victory. And uh, that's not good enough for me. I want to race to the top. I want, I want an awesome uh, opposition leader. I want intelligent debate not just three-word slogans and, and you know, fumbling and bumbling all over the place and joking about climate change. It's, uh, you know, I'd much rather see intelligent debate. I think Australia's not going to know what hit it, hopefully, in the next year or so. So is this what really distinguishes uh, democracies like Australia from, from young democracies or, or, or other countries where the political system is seen as quite weak in that, you know, we can have these conversations freely uh, without fear of persecution, that when there is a transition, even if it is something like a spill that can happen overnight and we can have a new leader, there is no instability whatsoever. You know, it is essentially a, a smooth transition and yeah, there might be some loss in business confidence. I think as you Mm. were saying to me earlier, Carly and, and some other little, hiccups but they're so they're just blips aren't they yes there's no bloodshed yeah it's not major at all but you know when we're talking about democracy uh in in other countries uh particularly in a development context we you know we often focus on voting and on elections and on being able to vote and that's one stage but surely like the 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 high the higher standard should be getting to a point where you know you can have these smooth transitions where you can have changes in the government by the law and by the constitution which don't yeah. really affect you know the political economic or social life of people yeah just to throw a spanner in the works is it the system that is creating this stability in australia or is it just general apathy are we more interested in who the bachelor is going to pick as opposed to who the leader in the country is i think brennan you raised this point earlier um when we discussing this is that you talked about this leadership spill is more about the drama, mm. the cinematic theatre about it, as opposed to what this means in terms of our... Um... Totally. The, the theatre of it is mesmerising. Mm. But, but in the long run, I don't think it's that healthy for, for Australian democracy at all because I would have much rather seen Tony Abbott complete a full term as Prime Minister you know, I, I, I don't know if Malcolm Turnbull will be a better leader or, or, he'll, or if he'll just be, um, you know, another spokesperson for, for his party, which is a party that has certain values that I don't necessarily agree with. So I don't know where to come down on this. And, and I think it's going to create a lot of interest in uh, discussion in the media and hopefully people will be a bit more engaged. Maybe that will be a byproduct. You know, maybe all these spills and all this really exciting political events will make people more interested in politics. Um, and, and I think what will make people more interested will be if we bring the sexy back to politics. Yeah. I really think that we need to sex it up, not with Tony Abbott's red uh, speedos 
um, otherwise known as budgie smugglers, otherwise known as banana hammocks, but with some really, really sexy intellectual debate, yeah. uh, conversations about things that matter. And yeah, and, and again, like what you said, Carly, going past three word slogans, like let's bring, because intelligence is sexy. So let's get the intelligent debate back. So yeah. can, uh, we'd love to do that again. Can I give you a three word slogan, way and bring in sexy back? Hashtag sexy back. <laughs> so speaking speaking of more important matters and more important issues, let's move on to our second topic, talking about the refugee crisis. And depending on what media you read, uh, Europe and indeed the world is experiencing a, a migrant or a refugee crisis. And one thing that's becoming really clear that it's it's a crisis is really becoming defined by photographs, such as that of um, Aylin. And, you know, it, it perhaps has even spurred countries to change track and respond globally. So Australia responded, albeit a little bit late, by extending uh, an additional 12,000 spots for Syrian refugees. The US has kicked in 10,000, uh, but certainly there's more we can do. So it really is a global crisis, not just a European one. Yet... With the photographs, I mean, five months before the photograph of Aylin, there was a very similar photograph I, I found of an Eritrean boy who, who, whose body was pulled ashore uh, off the coast of southern Italy. And that photograph was just uh, buried. It, it didn't make headlines. It didn't get its own hashtag. It didn't do the rounds on social media. And the story of that particular event uh, off the coast of southern Italy just went unnoticed and, and the the story was of a Greek soldier who rescued 20 refugees. You know, this big burly man was seen pulling Eritrean refugees from, from the surf. And in 2014, it was estimated at least 40,000 Syrians crossed the Mediterranean to seek asylum. And in the same year, 35,000 Eritreans made that same journey across the Mediterranean to seek asylum. So the question I wanted to really pose and, and get us talking about is, is it just the sheer numbers of Syrian refugees now? You know, it's up to about 3 million um, in terms of capturing uh, media attention and policy debate and, and people's reactions. Or to paraphrase Kanye West, uh, does Europe and, and indeed the world just not care about black people? Well, the world certainly does care about Kanye. So I just want to, if he's listening, Kanye, you know, rest assured we care about you immensely. And North West and all those other people, other Wests that you've got. Soon to be um, Southwest. Really? Is that, is that for real? I'm, I'm, yeah. Well, they're having another kid. Okay. We really can, being called Southwest. We can only hope. Oh, we can only hope. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I think there's no doubt. I think there's absolutely no doubt the fact that Eritrean um, refugees don't make as good photos as uh, Syrian refugees because they're not white, because they're black, and, and and a black life doesn't matter as much as a white life, unfortunately, as far as the media and the world is concerned. Um, and we've seen that time and time again, different um, conflicts that we, uh, you know, we as in the global community choose to get involved with versus not. There is, there's too many on the list. Um, it's unfortunate. Um, I was just thinking actually about this psych study that I was reading the other day where they got the same face of a certain person and then they altered the lightness of the skin all the way from very light to very dark and then they got this person to say one line about something and then they 
sent this out to different people and they said, like, how much do you trust this person? And what they found was that people trusted the darker skinned person less. Okay, that's not a huge surprise, perhaps. Who were the but people then, they sent it to, though? Uh, like, where are they from? Why, well, yeah. White people or? Well, this is that's where I'm getting to. So oh. they sent to a mixture. And the fact that white people trusted dark people less is perhaps not surprising, but even black people trusted black people less. So what it means is that it's not necessarily about your clan. It's not about, um, you know, your big gang versus this gang. Like, it's about innate racist uh, stereotypes that we have that are very, very hard to dissolve. And these are things that we can't help but be affected by. Um, it's a classic. I don't know. Have you guys read Thinking Fast and Slow? No. Yeah, Brendan has. So this is a book that talks about, you know, your, your, you have two reactions to things. You have System 1 and System 2. System 1 is the one that kicks in first, it has biases, it has heuristics, so forth. And the second one, System 2, is more rational, slower thinking. This is classic System 1 thinking. Like, we just look at things straight away and go, bang, dark, bad, white, light, better. Carly? Well, I, I would have thought that, I mean, that's a really interesting study. Uh, I would have thought that it would have been more related to, you know, in terms of xenophobia, like, so fear or... Um, I guess unrelatability, like not as relatable, uh, that 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 would be playing into this. So you know, when you do see a, a, a white Syrian boy face down in the sand, as opposed to a black person, that that it would be more so that the white people are saying, you know, thinking, oh, that could have been my son, that could have been my daughter, or what have you. Um, I, I wouldn't. I yeah, I, I'm very interested to hear that it was you know people of color were also. We're also voting that, or, or saying that they, they were less trustworthy. Uh, yeah, I, I. In terms of Brendan, your broader question, it, whether or not uh, to do with the numbers, I, I think because the international community is so involved in that region, in terms of the military and uh, military interventions, and this, you know, the involvement, the sort of geopolitical focus is in that region and. I feel that that combined with the numbers is what's creating this, uh, you know, combustible kind of media focus happening at the moment in that area and uh, that the Eritrean crisis because we don't, we aren't really involved with boots on the ground or flying aeroplanes in the air bombing. It's, it's not as uh, pertinent to our media landscape, let's say. It, it only matters to Taylor Swift's. Uh, music videos that that continent hit and exists at all. Oh, absolutely. Is it's, actually is she filming in Eritrea next? It's it's quite a it's quite a stark contrast, isn't it, when the Australian government announces it will open an extra twelve thousand humanitarian spots for refugees, and at the same time announces that it's going to conduct uh, joint airstrikes uh, over Syria. I was watching an interview with a, a former UNHCR employee the other day, and he's saying that. You know, although the number of Syrian refugees uh, crossing borders at the moment, although that's quite unprecedented, you know, this movement of, of, ref of large numbers of refugees is not new, that this is not a, there's not a new refugee crisis, that this has been happening for decades. And, you know, you only need to think of somewhere like the uh, Dadaab refugee camp, which was established yep. in, you know, 1991. It was originally built to hold 90,000 people. Uh, I'm reading here in 2013, the population stood at almost half a million registered refugees. Absolutely. It's a village. It's a village now. So, you know, my my thinking about what's happening in Europe, I, I just think of 
uh, refugees in Dadaab. I think of the Rohingya, who are essentially mm -hmm. stateless uh, in Bangladesh, in Malaysia, uh, in, in other parts of the world. You know, what, what is happening to these people at the same time? You know, we are trying to find permanent solutions for Syrian refugees, but what about, you know, a refugee who's been living in Dadaab since 1991 and has no Absolutely, and it would take... If you were to process every refugee on Earth, I actually don't think this includes the Syrian numbers that we've just seen, but if you were to process every refugee on Earth in the in the so-called you know, lining up in whatever queue you're supposed to line up by UNHCR and their really stretched resources, it would take 400 years to process all the refugees. Wow. So then taking that, taking that original question a step further, if those 3 million refugees from you know, a combination of maybe Eritrea, Somalia, um, you know, South Sudan. Do you think we'd be seeing a different response? I know the response to Syrian refugees has been, you know, um, it hasn't all been positive. It hasn't all been open arms. Oh, okay. It has been mixed for sure. Um, but do you think we'd see a, a broad kind of welcoming, particularly from from people and from communities who are trying to respond and, and trying to support Syrian refugees? You know, you have all these stories of like Germans acting essentially as people smugglers, you know, driving into Hungary and, mm. and taking people across borders. Do you think you'd see a same response if those 3 million people were from um, any number of African nations? I think it's nice. I mean, well, Germany is a really good example, right? Because of what Angela Merkel said publicly, um, you know, essentially saying that we have such a low birth rate, we have uh, low, unemplo low unemployment, we need to have these jobs here, blah, blah. There are towns that are essentially ghost towns. And then someone asked the question about, you know, don't you think it's going to be difficult for them to fit into our culture? And blah, blah, blah. And then she said this quote, which I don't know if you guys call it, it was a great quote. She said, fear is not a very good advisor. Or fear is not a great advisor. You know, you don't base your decisions based yeah. on fear. Essentially, it's just saying be pragmatic about it. So using that logic, sure, it doesn't matter whether the people are from Syria, Eritrea, Somalia. It's just another willing human being to be part of this new society forming. At least that's what she's saying in terms of rhetoric. I don't know in practice what, what you think. So speaking of, of fitting into society, I think that's a good segue into our last topic way on, on language and whether or not you need language to work in development. Now, I know the United Nations and many of the United Nations agencies um, require employees to be able to speak at least two of their working languages. And those languages are Russian, Arabic, English, French, Spanish, and Mandarin Chinese. But what about other languages? You know, do you need to be bilingual or multilingual to work in development way? Well, as you know, Brendan, I'm quite the linguist myself. Uh, I speak many languages, including Klingon, the language of love. Um, do you speak many, the, many different types? Do you speak Dothraki? What's that? <gasps> you don't Why? watch Game of Thrones. Ah, ah. There you go. Shame on you. There you go. I He's been outed. Gonna, I thought you were going to bring up a Games of Thrones reference uh, when we are talking about the skill, to be honest. Um, surprised none of you guys mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, this is based upon a discussion that I had with a friend recently here where we were talking about this, you know, very high entry bar to work in the United Nations. And, um, and then the question was raised was, if you are able to speak these languages, but you're working in a place where they don't speak these languages, so Cambodia, for example, does that really matter? I mean, does that really make you a better employee? Does it really matter that you can hang out with French expats in Cambodia and, you know, whisper sweet nothings in their ears 
you know, Vule Vukushera Begma, and that's pretty much the only French that I know. You know, does that really matter? Fluent way, you're fluent. Basically. Or does it, does it matter? Because you're showing an interest in other languages. You're showing you're adept at learning new languages. So potentially you could learn Khmer, Cambodian language. You know, what do you guys think? Do you think it is relevant? So, I mean, not, not to get too much into uh, research literature, but, you know, there, there are studies on, on bilingual children that show more positive cognitive consequences for children who are bilingual as opposed to monolingual. So the kind of research generally uh, will argue that, yes, it's better if your child is bilingual, that uh, particularly cognitively. And so I, I, think, I think you can extend that argument to generally being you know, more empathetic, uh, being more culturally sensitive, being able to work cross-culturally and communicate cross-culturally. But then that's not necessarily true either, is it? I'm sure we've all met our fair share of bilingual people who Assholes. don't know don't, you have those traits yes yeah. i was gonna so put it, i was gonna put it more politically than that way but you're 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 spot on yeah so i don't look i don't think you need to be fluent in a in a, another language to work in development I, I i certainly think it helps if you you know give it a go and i you know there there, there is the flip side where english is becoming and, and has become quite such a dominant working language and that many of the communities that you do work with, for, for them, English is a goal that they have in terms of their own learning and their own knowledge. And that's kind of the flip side of it too. How many languages do you speak, Brendan? I, I don't, I don't, I speak three languages very badly and that's including English. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I gave Chinese Mandarin a go when, when I lived there and I have probably forgotten a lot of it now because it's, you know, been a good couple of years since I lived there. And, but you know, I, mean, I, I used to remember how to say MSG gives me diarrhea. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I used to be, you know, how how to order my favorite dish without any trace of meat in it was really important for me. How to order my tea and and also talk with um, the local family who owned my favorite tea store. You know, so it, it certainly enabled me to build bonds with people and to function just day to day. But I certainly didn't become fluent in it. I didn't become academically literate in Chinese by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I, I had enough to feel like I had a better understanding of Chinese culture and behavior and... Okay, but, but to, to play, to just to pick up on that. Yeah. So if you, so Carly, if Brendan had taken Mandarin that he's learned in China and then he got posted in Eritrea, mm. does his ability to speak Mandarin affect his ability to work as the head of UN Ops in Eritrea? Clearly not. Mm. And I actually, I'm actually not 100% convinced that it's actually a, like a deal breaker with getting a job at the UN because I know a lot of people that work at the UN who don't, who aren't fluent in two of those, those you know, two languages. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's across the board, but for example, uh, UNICEF, their Emerging Talent Initiative, this new thing they've got going on where they recruit uh, globally from around the world for what is essentially graduate positions in UNICEF, you have to have at least two of the UN working languages and they test you on those languages too. So yeah. th there are instances, but I think, yeah, if, maybe if you're more senior, you can come in yeah. um, at, at, into the into a particular organisation without having that fluency. Yeah, and certainly country agency officers yeah. don't require it at all. Yeah. So. But way, way, just... way, how has language helped you in your role in development? 
Well, I mean, that's that's the thing is I think in, in Cambodia, you know, this is the first country that I've been to where people who are foreigners, uh, expats, don't actually learn the local language, particularly in Phnom Penh, because they happen to be able to get by, um, you know, we're talking to tuk-tuk drivers or ordering lattes without necessarily needing to speak the local language. But I just I just think that that's not really a, a real experience of the country. It's a very shallow experience. Because my logic is that you're only talking to people that are a certain subset of the whole population. So you're only talking to people who work in tourism, for example. You're only talking to people who work in cafes, and they're the educated ones. But if you really want to get out to talk to people that have no contact with other Westerners, then you need to be able to speak some of the language. And I think time and time again, I mean, last week we were talking about, um, I think we're talking about stupid foreigner moments, um, of which I've had many since the last time we talked. But we talked about, you know, the things that you get out of working in development. One of them that I said was, I, I love this idea of feeling silly. Um, and that's the beauty of being able to speak a local language. So I've, I've had recent conversations with some people in, in Khmer, um, and, and I, won't, I won't say my Khmer is fantastic, it's about 70% of where it should be probably, but it's good enough um, for now. I, I've learned so much. I've learned so much from these conversations that I would not have been able to get simply because the people that I'm talking to cannot speak my language or they're not feeling comfortable enough to speak English and express themselves in the same way. So in country with that particular country, speaking that language, yeah, for sure, I understand. Yeah, I've, I've, I've certainly also felt the benefits of it recently with my own PhD research in the, in the communities I was in. You know, I was essentially being exposed to uh, language lessons just by observing these particular classrooms and children who were learning their mother tongue, Dagbani, which is spoken by a million people in northern Ghana. But just being exposed to that and, and, and learning with the children and then being able to try and reproduce it and communicate with the children and then doing interviews and, you know, being able to pick up words and sentences here and there and, and understand that meaning rather than just getting that English translation and able to catch up, you know, uh, particular errors the translator was making or or if the translator was not you know uh, capturing the meaning um, in a faithful way was 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 very useful but you know sometimes way that you know uh, people in this sector move around so much that it's not always possible to to go that deep and to yeah. really master a particular language you have to be able to move around and and really work cross-culturally yeah that's true I mean I think even very basic understanding of a language can help, which doesn't take that long. I was just thinking about the effect of language, relationship between language and culture. Um, uh, the Prime Minister of Cambodia, Hun Sen, two years ago, gave a speech in Parliament which went for four and a half hours. And it was deemed by local commentators and punters to be one of the finest speeches ever known to mankind. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the direct quote. Now, that is confidence to us. That doesn't make any sense. In Cambodian language, there is two phrases which have English translations. One of them is talk straight, or as we would say in particular in Australia, is he's a straight talker, um, which is obviously a positive. The second phrase is essentially the same as beat around the bush. And again, at least in Australian sense, that's a pejorative term. It's a negative thing. So we, we prefer straight talkers. We don't like people who beat around the bush. In Cambodia, these phrases are flipped. Someone who beats around the bush is an excellent speaker. 
someone who goes straight to the, to the point is not appreciated. And that's why his four and a half hour speech was so well received. Um, that's why you should never ever start a speech or any discussion in Cambodian with the phrases, I'm going to be brief today, or in short, I will blah, blah, blah. Because people feel like you're cheating them or you're hiding something or why, why? I came here to listen to you and you're only going to give me five minutes? No, I want four and a half hour version. <laughs> So without the knowledge of this, of this language and how it affects culture, you know, you're, you're not going to understand a lot about your customs and practices. And I think that sort of makes you less effective as well. We live in, in a multilingual world and, and that many of the communities and people that you work with are multilingual. You know, you yourself may not be multilingual, but, um, you know, certainly I think back to these uh, kids that I worked with in northern Ghana who were working across and learning across three different languages and three different literacies. So we, and we live in a very much a multilingual world, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for. So I'd like to thank Carly and Wei for the engaging discussion as always. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. You can join a conversation on Twitter and give us all your hate tweets at hashtag <laughs> mission creep dev. We'd love to hear from you and until next time, stay safe and be well.